Thanks for listening to this sermon from Garden City Methodist Church. We want to invite you to worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m., either in person or online. You can come to our beautiful sanctuary at 62 Varnado Avenue, Garden City, Georgia, or you can worship with us online as we stream our services at GardenCityUMC.com. When you're in law school, your first year of law school, you take a course called Moot, M-O-O-T, course. Moot court is where you're arguing a case that's moot. It doesn't make any difference. They give you a set of facts. It's your first experience you have in a lawsuit of doing what real lawyers do. And you actually, everybody went and bought a moot. They called it a moot court blue suit. So I got my moot court blue suit on the day, maybe sooner or a dark suit. And they give you a case to argue. And you're arguing it at this point at the appeals level. The trial's already happened. There's already been a jury verdict or a judge has already made a ruling. And you're at the appellate level. Well, the first appeals court is hearing in Georgia is the Court of Appeals of Georgia and Atlanta. So in good court, you're actually standing at a podium. So it's most like what I'm doing now. You're arguing to the judges what should happen. And you have a time limit. And in most courts, it's 10 minutes. And they have a, at the, at the court, they have uh, three lights on the podium where you're talking. There's a green light, that's where you can talk. When it turns yellow, you have two minutes left, I think, and it turns red and your time is up. Well, in law school, we didn't have the fancy lights, so our moot court partner would um, have a, just some index cards, and we'd write a big number two on it when you had two minutes left, a big number one when you had one minute left, and then a zero when your time is up. And I should have given Greg some index cards. Oh, Lord. Zero. If your partner didn't start popping, you start kind of waving it like this. Because so the court knew it had time as well. They can cut you off. He can so just do this, Lisa. I'm well aware of time. Yeah. Oh, he does that? Clock. I got my phone up here. I'm watching That's when he's ready to go. He does that. I don't want the court to turn it up. I don't want to cut you off. Actually, at, at, at the court of appeals, they actually turn the microphone off, I think, when it goes red. So you have to put pause. <laughs> You don't have a choice, the judges can't hear So let's pray before I start. Let me pray for me. Lord, please let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Matt asked me a few weeks ago um, to do this. Well, he asked me if I knew anybody that could cover for him. So he, it was a last-minute trip that they got to make to see his parents. They hadn't seen him in a while. And I said, well, I know somebody. I can do it. And uh, I don't know if he asked me that knowing I could do it or he just, uh, that was a rhetorical question or he really wanted if I knew anybody could do it. So he couldn't find another minister to cover. So I told him I would be glad to cover that. I looked at what Sunday it was and I thought, well, this is great. It's Epiphany. Actually, we're still in Christmas. Merry Christmas, y'all. This is still Christmas. Tree's still up. My tree's still up at home. Whose tree's still up? Yay! Y'all are real good Christians. It's still Christmas. Start taking the tree down and not following the Christian year. Epiphany is January 6th. That's when we celebrate the wise men coming. Now, we, I'll talk in a little bit of the exact date that came. But January 6th is the day on the calendar that we switch in the Christian calendar from Christmas to Christmas. And then we stay in Epiphany until the next is Lent. We start getting ready for Easter. So the Christian year flies by just like the real year flies by. Before you know it, it'll be Easter Sunday. We'll be in here celebrating Easter. So right now, we are still in Christmas today. But on January 6th, which falls on, I think it's Wednesday this week, Thursday, since it's the middle of the week, I decided, I asked Matt if it was okay if he was going to preach about 15 next Sunday. 
And he said, now he's actually starting a series next Sunday on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So be in prayer for him as he prepares. And, and let me tell you, maybe start looking at the Sermon on the Mount yourself at home. Look at your Bible and kind of start getting ready. We're going to preach on the Sermon on the Mount. So he said, I could have, I could have a good thing. So I said, great. So that's easy because, you know, there's these two songs we sing. We three kings and... And, uh, the first Noel talks about the epiphany, one that does about the angels, and then there's an easy, you know, you know scripture in the Bible. I can do epiphany, but let me tell you, I have a new respect for preachers and what they have to do because I have read these, this verse we're about to read now, this verse out of the Bible, every day this week, and every day I come up with something new. And, oh, I gotta, I gotta follow this lead. I gotta, I gotta go see about this. I gotta look at this, and I go around and around and around about what I'm gonna say. So hopefully. It's kind of the same way that you prepare, that I prepare for an oral argument before the court. You've got the facts of the case. When you're at the appellate level, you either won the law or you lost the law. If you're the appellate, you're appealing, you lost. You're trying to convince the court, the trial judge, the trial court, the jury got it wrong. Here's the law. Judge, the court need to overturn what happened before. If you're the appellee, which I like being better, you won below. And you're just up there saying, judge got it right, jury got it right. Affirm what happened below. But you, you may have to argue, they're going to give you some law that maybe you hadn't thought about, you've got to give the court, wait a minute, they're wrong, here's why I'm right, here's some law in our favor. So it was kind of like this week, preparing for an oral argument today. So I'm going to pretend y'all are my jury, and I'm the, well actually you're my appellate judges, and I'm arguing. Because if I were at a jury, I'd be pacing, and I know that Facebook can't pick me up if I go down there and the microphone will pick me up. I'd be pacing back and forth in front of the jury talking, and I can't do that. I'm going to stay in one spot like I'm at the appellate court, and I'm going to try to convince y'all that what I'm telling today is true. And you can tell me at the end whether I won or lost, okay? We'll have a vote at the end. Let's see if I can convince you. So what we're going to talk about is the wise way, the major. I actually saw I've been pronouncing it wrong all these years. You learn something every day. It's M-A-G-I major. I goes from the Greek majors, which means wise men. So um, well, let's read it, and then we'll talk about it. Turn in your Bibles. Take your bulletin. I'm going to read the one inside the bulletin because that, um, that's the version that you've got. This is Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. 
On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this story of the wise men only appears in Matthew. It's not in Luke. Actually, Matthew and Luke are the only two Gospels that talk about Jesus' birth at all. Uh, John and Mark, go on, they start with his life, with his preaching, his teaching. So Matthew is the only one to talk about the three wise men coming. And um, one of the commentaries I read when I was preparing was, talked about the fact that Matthew was written from the perspective of teaching the Gentiles. So that may have been why Matthew talks about the wise men, because as you know, we are all Gentiles, and the Jews knew about the coming of Jesus. They knew about the Messiah. The Gentiles did not. So that's perhaps why Matthew records it and why God inspired it to be put as part of our Bible in Matthew rather than anywhere else. And so when we're preparing for a case as an attorney, going back to when I first get the case, it comes to me, I used to, I mean, I retired when I was 30, I'm not practicing law anymore. So I'm, I'm already seeing I'm going to miss it a little bit. Because when you get that new case in, it's kind of like getting a present. You know, because you don't know what's in it. And, and you're thinking, oh gosh, now I've got more work to do. I'm not going to start. I'm going to have enough hours I can build for the client. Because, you know, I, in addition to working, you know, I probably had 50 active files at one time. But out of those 50, some are settling. Some are going to court and being resolved. Some are getting dismissed. And so that one goes away, and we only got 49 to work on. And then another one goes away. And so when a new one comes in, it's like, great, i got something else to work on. So you're excited that you've got your, your practice is going to continue. You're going to be able to make a living. The second thing about the new case coming in is you don't know what it's going to be. You get a package. Now, sometimes you can figure out who it's coming from. We had certain clients that they had certain clients that only sent me their workers' comp. So I knew it was a workers' comp claim I was going to defend. So I knew it was on the job injury. But you still didn't know what kind of injury or how it happened. And a lot of them were this, a lot the same. They, most of my workers' comp claims, most, in fact, statistics show a large percentage of the cases in Georgia that people have heard of a job are back injuries. They're back strains. Because people doing work, obviously, when you bend over and hurt your back, it's, it's usually such a bad thing, you have to stop working because that's when you find a workers' comp claim. There are also a lot of knee injuries. Knees and backs are a big thing I see all the time. But again, every case was different. And so you open the, I would open the file and see what happened. And the way you find out what happened is by what the claims adjuster, which in most of the case, I was defending the insurance companies. Insurance companies who insure people, like Kerry has a business. I know this is happening to Kerry. Somebody gets hurt on his job, they file a claim. His insurance company hires an attorney to defend him, to defend mental building maintenance. He doesn't have to hire an attorney. He's insurance company. He pays insurance premiums for that. So I'm the one the insurance company hired to defend these people. So my client was actually the person, the company that got the claim filed against him, but the insurance company is also my client. And there's it gets complicated. There's no conflict between clients there because the insurance is for the benefit of client law. Anyway, insurance company hires me to defend a company. So the insurance adjuster is who has investigated the file. And what they've done is they've interviewed witnesses. They've talked to the claimant, the person who was hurt. They've talked to the employer who employed the claimant. They've looked at medical records, possibly. They've looked at business records. If they're already, like some businesses, when you do something, you have to log it in. 
I did some work for George Power. There are people that read the meters, had to send a report every day what meters they read and what happened. So I look at those reports to see if they report an injury. So you look at the who, the what, the where, the how. That's what you're doing when you're defending a case. So when I, when I started looking at this, the story of the wise men, I looked at it from the perspective of who, what, when, where, how, and why. And I, I said, I'm going to be quick going through each one of them. But the number one question is, who were the wise men? Now, I meant, and I packed it up very often. I left it in the truck. I left it at home. But I had my three wise men from my manger scene from home that I was going to bring. And as we just sang, they're three kings. But we know from the scriptures that they were magi. Magi. I've got to say it right. Magi which is wise men. Who were the Magi? They were wise men. And why were they wise and why were they chosen to be Magi? Well, I mean, I spent all week looking at this, and it wasn't until this morning when I looked at it one more time, getting ready. Actually, I woke up at 6 o'clock this morning and couldn't sleep. I just got up and just looked at my notes again. And I found something I had not run across until today. So this is kind of last minute, but I think it's been so important here. I found a sermon or a, an article written. He's a preacher, so he may preach this sermon. Named Ron Etheridge on Google. And he wrote a sermon called Daniel, the Magi, and Jesus. And I had seen somewhere else a reference to Daniel, but he explains it more clearly. Daniel, if you remember in the Bible, was the one who was thrown in the lion's den. Daniel was Jewish. And I remember Miss Betty from teaching our Sunday school class, so I had this big circle of the, the Judeo-Christian um, cycle, really the Jews' cycle, how the Jews would, Abraham promised them they were going to be God's people. They sinned, they got invaded, they got captured, they got put under somebody's rule. Then they repented, the prophets you know, convinced them to repent, they got better, and they went back to their own land, and they got attacked again, and they got captured, and then they repented. It had a big circle. So during this circle, the Babylonians had invaded Judah, and had taken all, they conquered Judah in a war, and they they, take, they deported, took the best and brightest of their youth to Babylon, which is now we think is near where Iran, Iraq are, that part of the country. They took them from Judah and took them to Babylonia to um, instruct the young people in their culture. We want them to be like us. If we're going to own them, if we're going to be in charge of them, we're going to bring their best young men over here, and we're going to make them Babylonians. We're going to speak them in our culture. And they brought Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, the ones we know about in Daniel. And you remember, those four young men, they were teenagers, y'all, and they were brave enough to say, we ain't following your God, we ain't bowing down to your idols, and we're going to pray. And because of that, Daniel got thrown in the lion's den. And as you remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown in the fire, and they survived. And Daniel got thrown in the lion's den, and God shut the mouths of the lions, and Daniel survived. And the king, who was Nebuchadnezzar, was the king at that time, he saw this happen, and he suddenly realized, wow, these guys, their God's pretty great. So, and I've forgotten this part of the story. Nebuchadnezzar put Daniel in charge of all the magi. The magi were the wise men in the court, who David, the king would call on. When he had a bad dream, he'd call him to interpret his dream. When something was going wrong, he'd call the wise man in. What are we going to do? What do you do about this? And so he, he, he put Daniel in charge of all the wise men. Daniel interpreted some dreams for Nebuchadnezzar as well. So because he was in charge, what do you think Daniel did? He converted these magi. 
He converted these wise men. Now, you may not all of them listen to him, but Daniel was telling the Magi about God, his God, Yahweh, the God that he had honored his entire life. So it doesn't say that in the Bible, but you know, that's kind of, we extrapolate that, we can assume that because of the fact that Daniel was over all the wise men, and because Daniel was such a strong man and he was willing to stand up to the king and say, I'm not going to pray to your God, I'm going to pray to my God, you know that Daniel taught the Magi about his God and his doctrine. And you know he told them about part of the Jewish heritage, part of their doctrine, part of their theology was a Messiah is coming. There's a Messiah coming. So these Magi were not just some wise men of Persian salt, right star, beside following. They were men who had been trained by Daniel. Now this is a couple of generations later. They had passed it down because the Magi was like a family thing. It was like priests. Once you did it, once your father did it, and your sons did it, it was passed down. And they had been presumably studying Daniel's teaching that it passed down through the generations until these Magi, who also, because they were wise men, they were astrologers, they were astronomers, they watched the sky. And so when these Magi, who had been trained by their parents, who had been trained by Daniel, that God is the God of all, there's a Messiah coming, they were like Anna and Simeon in the Bible that that Matt mentioned last week, they were expecting a Messiah. They were watching the skies for a sign of the Messiah. I mean, I don't, I don't get into astrology. I know I'm an Aries, being some Aries. If you were born between March 20th and April 20th, you're an Aries. And Aries is the first up, no logical sign. And I used to read my horoscope and some paper just for fun, but then I finally realized you could read all 12 of them and you had to apply to you. It's like, you know, Good things are going to happen. Put your hand down and do your job. You know, stuff that could apply to anybody. But that's a real study of the stars and the constellations. And there's a constellation, Aries. And in um, astrology, Aries, that constellation is assigned to Judah, which is Israel, which is where Jesus was coming. And the Messiah was coming out of Judah. So these wise men, these magi, were watching the sky. They were watching Aries. The constellation that represented Judah. And so as they're watching, this phenomenon occurs. Now, it's interesting to me that people have been studying this for years. There's there's an astronomist, he's actually an astrophysicist. Y'all watch the Big Bang Theory? He's a Sheldon. <laughs> there's a Sheldon at Notre Dame. He's an astrophysicist. And he, he says he describes himself. He says people see something in the stars. And I chart it and look at it and tells them what it means. And he doesn't mean they see astrological signs. He sees they see a supernova or a comet. You know, supernova is when a star explodes. You remember that from your science class. The star explodes and you see this big bright light. A uh, comet, we all remember Halley's comet. A uh, comet shoots across the sky, you can see it. Usually the telescope better than the naked eye. But this astrophysicist, he's a professor at Notre Dame, which as you know is a Catholic-sponsored university. And he decided a few years ago, uh, his name is Matthews, Grant Matthews. He decided to try to figure out if there is scientific proof that the wise men, 2,000 years earlier, really saw a star. Now, he was thinking in his mind it was probably a supernova or a nova, something big and bright that they saw, and that made them think, all right, the Messiah's coming. They knew about the Messiah because they had studied the Jewish history and the Jewish law. So this astrophysicist, he actually, this is amazing to me. I was never good at science or math. 
But it's amazing to me that now NASA has these telescopes and these machines that they can go backward in time and look at what the sky looked like 2,000 years ago. Or they can go forward in time and figure out what the sky's look like. Because they're looking, they're studying the stars, they're studying the universe, they're studying the planets. And you know, they, you know how you remember from your solar system how the planets rotate around the sun and the Earth's one of those planets and how they all, at some point, they all line up in certain configurations. And to an astrology person, this means something. When I remember that song from when we were kids, some of the young people, the age of Aquarius. It is the dawning of the age of when Jupiter aligned with Mars. That's what I'm talking about. They were watching this. And they saw, I got your attention now, didn't I? And they saw, these magi saw, what, what Brent Matthews figured out was not a supernova or exploding star or a comet. He figured out from looking at these NASA telescope images uh, and going back, retrograding back 2,000 years, that there was a certain alignment that the magi, magi saw that was, had meaning to the astrologists, but also had meaning to the magi. And this alignment was uh, that Jupiter had lined up with the sun, and it was the vernal equinox. Let me find my exact notes. And then um, the moon was in there. The moon and the sun and the earth and Jupiter had all aligned a certain way. And by doing this, you and I looking at it wouldn't know the difference. But these magi who had studied the universe, who had studied astrology for years, they knew that that alignment meant that a great king had been born. Because they studied it. They studied not only the fact that a Messiah was coming, they were expecting it, but they studied, that's what this means when the sun and the moon and Jupiter and Mars all line up a certain way at a certain time, it had to be during the vernal equinox, that that means a great ruler has been born and that that great ruler is going to save us all. He's going to save, not save all of us, but going to save the world. He's going to be a savior. He's going to save people. So because they saw all that, they knew we got to go. We got to see this person. We want to worship him because they were so invested, so inspected in the fact that Messiah's come. They're saying to each other, he's here. The Messiah is here. We got to go see him. Now, they were 800 miles, 600 miles, depending on where they were in Babylonia, Mesopotamia, Iran now, to get to Jerusalem was, was going to be 600 to 800 miles. And it was mostly across the desert. So that's why every time you see the wise men and the little manger scene that I was going to bring my wise men, there's some camels. And I noticed on the bulletin, I'm glad Matt did that. The bulletin for that, maybe Debbie did that. It's got the picture of the camels in the caravan. Because even though the Bible doesn't say a word about camels, they came from Babylonia, Babylon, and they had to cross a desert to get to Jerusalem and Bethlehem. So they had to have camels, so they couldn't have gotten across that desert. And they probably traveled at night, because not only could they see the star, of course, they, this, is, this is my point about where they really wise, did they really have, they knew where Jerusalem was. That was their big secret. There were trade routes to Jerusalem from the east. They didn't know where, exactly where Jesus had been born, but they knew how to get across the desert to Jerusalem. So they may not have needed a star at night, but they traveled at night most likely because, you know, the desert temperatures, it's hundreds of degrees during the day, and you couldn't travel, so you would travel at night and sleep during the day. They had, if you see, 
the multiple camels they probably had in addition to the wise men riding them, they had their tents and their bed clothes, their bed, their bedding, their change clothes, their food, their water. They had to have all that go with them too. So most likely it was not three wise men, it was probably a caravan, a caravan of wise men. Maybe the three magi. I wouldn't go for the three magi. I'm just, the Bible just says wise men, just says magi. It doesn't say there were three. I think everybody assumes there were three because they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But one of the commentaries I read was they probably bought loads of, not just one little, you see the, the picture, the wise men I was reading my major scenes, holding one little thing of gold, one little thing of frankincense, one little thing of myrrh. In reality, they probably had camels using them as Pat mules carrying a bunch of gold, a bunch of frankincense, and a bunch of myrrh, and they brought, they didn't just bring one little thing of it. Because um, we know that Jesus and his family lived off that and used those gifts to be able to escape to Egypt. God used the gifts that were brought and kept money to go to Egypt to hide from Herod, who's stealing all the kids, because the wise men come to Jerusalem first. But I, I'm getting ahead of myself. We know the wise men had to make a long trip, so we know they were probably on camels. And we know they had. 800 miles, which took months, not just a few days or a few weeks. So, when you have your manger scene at home, and I have mine, and you have the three wise men right there at the manger with Jesus, that's really not historically accurate. Now, I don't see anything wrong with it because I think it's just significant to us that we acknowledge that the three wise men came to see Jesus, but just he didn't, they didn't come at the manger at the time they were in the manger. We know from the scripture that we just read that they came to the house where Jesus was. And he wasn't in the stable anymore. He was, by this time, in a house. And it says the child, rather than the babe, and the child, babe, could be the same thing, but the best estimates are that the wise men came when Jesus was between four months and a year old is when they got to Bethlehem to worship him. They weren't there that night he died. And that night he was born, uh, like the shepherds were, or a few nights after he was born. They were there much later. It just took them time to get there. And we do know also that because they had to go such a long way, that um, it was a strenuous journey. It was not like you know, jumping in a car and running over to the McDonald's or downtown to work or across town. They had to act physically endure cold. They were traveling in the winter. It was cold. T.S. Eliot wrote a poem in 1927 called The Journey of the Wise Men. He talks in that poem about how horrible their journey was. And he actually People that, you know, if any of you took um, Gretchen Patricio for English, or whoever you had for English in high school, they would teach these poems that had other meanings, and they think that the journey of the wise man was actually T.S. Eliot's journey of faith because he had actually been um, converted. He, saw, he, he accepted Christ, accepted the church, right before he wrote the journey of the wise man. What a hard journey it was for him to give up the worldly things and become a Christian. So it was a journey for him and a struggle for him. And he talked about this point how the wise men struggled on this journey, but they kept going. They didn't give up. So these were wise men, these were magi who had, had been hearing about the birth of the Messiah for generations. They'd been taught by Daniel, all part of God's plan that Daniel would be taken from the Jews to Babylon, would be thrown in the lion's den, would become an advisor to the king, would then train people in Babylon in Persia about the Son of Christ, the Son of God, Christ coming to earth. So these wise men would make this journey. All of it, as you can see, is part of God's plan. It all just fits together so perfectly. What we also know is that um, 
Once the stars aligned and the wise men saw the star, this is where I kind of came up with the thing, were the wise men really wise? Why did they go to Jerusalem first? Because as we know, the story goes, they went to Jerusalem and, and asked Herod, or they asked on the streets and Herod heard about it, because Herod was a nervous ruler. He's, he's, he's ruling over all these Jews. There were a lot of them. They had a lot of power. They had their own hierarchical uh, church um, leaders that stir them up. And so he's listening. He hears these people talking about some of the signs that are born. So he calls the wise men to him. And the wise men tip Herod off to this child's been born. Herod did not know that Jesus had been born until the wise men got there. So what did he do? He said, when did you first see that star? And he had all the babies killed in Bethlehem surrounding Herod two years before that day. So he calls, and the wise men calls infants out. They call the master of a bunch of children. So one of the commentaries I read was, were the wise men really wise? Why did they go to Jerusalem? Why did they just go straight to Bethlehem? I don't know the answer to that. It may be that they didn't know about Bethlehem, and maybe they had not studied enough or read enough to it. Maybe they couldn't figure out in Bethlehem where he was or where Bethlehem was. They didn't know the country very well. Bethlehem, this is only about five miles south of Jerusalem, which five miles is a long way to had to walk. But we've all, a lot of us have done walkathons and walked in, it takes us half a day. We can walk five miles. And that, so it wasn't that far from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And, and I don't know the way we measure things today, but for some reason the wise men went to Jerusalem first, and it does say that, um, that <coughs> the star reappeared to them, and they rejoiced when they saw the star again while they were in Jerusalem. And then they went on to Bethlehem, and they learned in Bethlehem because Herod called his wise men in. Herod had wise men that advised him. He called in the chiefs and the scribes and the Pharisees from the Jews and said, "Where's this Messiah supposed to be born?" And they said, Bethlehem. And so Herod sent the wise men on to Bethlehem and then said, come back and tell me when you worship him. Because I want to worship him. And you know, the truth was, he wanted to kill Jesus because he didn't want the Jews to have a Messiah because he wanted to keep ruling. He wanted to be in charge. He wanted to have control. Well, God had a workaround for that because he went to the wise men in the dream and he told them, don't go back to Herod and tell them where you found the child. Go back home. So the wise men went back home. And we know that's all again part of God's plan. And because Herod had ordered the children to be killed, all the two-year-olds, the um, a dream, an angel went to Joseph in a dream, and he took his, his family, his little family, Mary and the baby, and they went to Egypt for two years until Herod, King Herod, the mean old king, died, then they could come back. And even when they came back, they didn't go back to Bethlehem, they went to Nazareth because Herod's son was ruling, and he was just like his father. He would have had to kill as well. He found out about it. So we know that what the, what the wise men saw was an alignment of the planets and the moon and the sun and the stars, or whatever they saw. It led them to where Jesus was. And they continued to seek him no matter what, no matter how cold it was, no matter how hot it was during the day. No matter how hungry they were, how thirsty they were, no matter how tired they were, they kept going. And now, why did they do that? Well, they wanted to see the Messiah. But what, what message does that have for us today? You know, last Sunday, Matt preached about how we should expect Jesus to come. We should expect things to happen in our lives. We should expect our faith to be challenged. We should expect things to happen. Because Anna and Simeon 
new baby Jesus in the temple when, they, when he was brought there eight days old was the, the Messiah was then expected. These wise men got on their camels and went 800 miles because they were expecting to find the Messiah. They were seeking the Messiah. Last week, Matt challenged us to expect things to happen, to expect the best. I'm challenging the dead to do more than that. And, I, and Matt can watch this and I can tell you I went above and beyond what you said, Matt. Don't just expect something to happen. Don't just sit on waiting for it. I'm telling you to do what the wise men did. My Lord is tough. Do what the wise men did and seek him. Seek him. Don't just sit back and wait for it to happen. Seek him. And how do we seek him? We know. Through study the Bible. I, I try my best. I'm not as, I'm not as good as I should be, but every one of us every day should be reading our Bibles. I don't mean just pick it up and read it. Uh, read a scripture, you're going to have to have some kind of study to go along with it. You're going to have to have some kind of guide so you don't go in circles. I mean, there's a, there's the upper room. You can go online. There's all kinds of devotions online. Um, we've done Bible studies. I'm praying about we need to start a Bible study back in this church. I think when we're in Bible studies, when I do the best, I know when I've got a little little homework I've got to do every night, it makes me do, it makes me get out my Bible and study and do my homework. We, this church needs to be constantly seeking Christ, seeking the Messiah, seeking God, not just sitting back, waiting for something to happen. We shouldn't be reactionary, we should be proactive. And to be proactive, we've got to be in this world. So my challenge to you, fellow members, and to myself too, regarding our best churches, be like the wise men. I think they were wise. Maybe they shouldn't have gone to Jerusalem first, maybe they should have gone straight to Bethlehem, I say, well, look, it's lost, but they went, they, they followed the star, they went to their ultimate destination. They found the baby Jesus because they looked for him. They saw him. And we need to do the same thing. Wise men saw him. Wise men still seek him. I'm not going to sing it. Instead, we're going to turn our hymnals and we're going to sing um, He is Born. Because we're still in Christmas. Page 228. He is born the Holy Child. We're still celebrating the birth of Christ. The wise men celebrate the birth of Christ. Let's keep that Spirit of Christmas in our hearts as we move into Epiphany this week, as we move into Lent and the weeks to come, as we prepare for Easter, let's don't forget what we're doing. Let's seek it. <laughs>